Um, we are in Luke chapter 9. I want to read verses 27 to, what is, is that the air conditioner? It's the wind of the Holy Spirit coming. All right, Luke 9, 27, and we're going to read to 45 if you can follow along with me. This is a very, uh, what I would say, one of those passages, I'm sure you heard it, but have you really dwelled upon it? This is an amazing passage. Begins in 27. Jesus is uh, just got done talking to his disciples, and he says, um, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And beheld, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with them. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he's saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out from the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless, twisted generation. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is a very odd passage. You go from Jesus being transfigured on top of a mountain, down the mountain to a guy being possessed by a demon. Very weird. I'd say a lot of people would take this as myth. I remember when I was, um, you probably don't know this, I have a sister who from, the, from grade, third grade till I was a senior in high school was in my grade. She actually was held behind because she went to three different schools in one year, and so they wanted to catch her up, so they put her in my grade. So we went through school together in every grade. However, 
They didn't want her being in any of my classes. The teachers just thought it wouldn't be healthy for us to have the same teacher. I don't know why. But we always wanted to have class together. And finally, our senior year, we had electives in my high school, and we took the same class. And it was the first time the school ever offered it. It was called Bible as Literature, Bible Lit. I said, Steph, you want to take that together? She goes, that'd be great. So we got to sit next to each other in this class. It was exciting. And we wanted to study the Bible together. We didn't know much about it. We were, we were Christian. We were religious. And we thought it would be good to know the Bible. Well, while we started going to this class, it was one of our favorite teachers. He was brilliant. But he started saying, this class, Bible is literature. We're going to study how the Bible has influenced not only our literature, but we're also going to see how the literature of the world has influenced the Bible. It's a fascinating class. So as we started taking it, we learned about Genesis. And he said, Genesis 1, the story of the creation, is taken from a lot of the myths, the Greek myths, the Roman myths, the Mesopotamian myths, about how this entity called God took chaos to order. And just the way he would talk about it was you know, more higher intellectual jargon, in my mind. Later we learned about the flood, and he said, this flood resembles the story of Gilgamesh. And in fact, a lot of the same verbiage is used from Gilgamesh, and so scholars over time have realized the Bible took from different sources to come up with their very own myths. And I remember asking him, I said, when you say myth, do you mean, what do you mean by that? Do you see the Bible as actual history? Do you believe that actually Moses parted the Red Sea? Do you believe Jesus actually rose from the dead? And he looked at me and he said, oh, no, no. I'm a teacher. I teach serious things, not fairy tales. I remember my sister and I looking at him and we said, then how do you take the Bible if it's not literal history? He said, well, I do believe it will do much good for us. Learning metaphors, especially the resurrection metaphor, how everybody has a chance to have renewal. And so he said, so you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead? And he goes, oh, no, in fact, I, I, I kind of side with Karl Marx. He said it like this. Religion kind of is like a drug for ignorant people. I just wouldn't say it as harshly. As he did, there can be some good accomplished from following the principles we learn from the biblical myth. It was shattering for me because at the time, number one, I really liked this teacher. I had him for other classes like Edgar Allan Poe and Shakespeare, and I learned a lot from him. But also, I never, I never heard this before because I kind of was, I really was not, I didn't think that much, I'll just be honest with you. And I'm like, wow, maybe the Bible I have isn't really trustworthy. Huh. That shattered me. It shattered me because what he said is he called himself a humanist, meaning he didn't believe in miracles. In fact... Over the last 32 years, it doesn't matter if I like it or not because I realize this perspective is now the norm. It is the norm. Teachers in high school, college, movie makers, newspaper reporters, politicians, 
psychologists, social workers, they all start from the premise of humanism, meaning everything you see is really all we know. The consensus, that means the intelligentsia, these smart people, they would say the concept of God is mostly speculation. There's no way to prove his existence. So we're kind of wasting our time arguing about it. Our job, is what intellectuals would say, is to figure out how to live and survive on our own here and now. Let's use reason. Let's use science. Let's use the psychology, sociologies, in order to make this world a better place. It's the, tool, the only tools we really have. Everything else is sort of superstition. You can have your superstition, but keep it private in your home. It's really not allowed in a public square anymore. This is the norm. It really is. It's the majority opinion. And if you were to just, just try this, just to mention in casual conversation at work or at school that you believe in prayer, that you believe in miracles, that you believe in angels, and that you believe there's such a thing as demons, it will be hard. It, it kind of is weird because you know people think you're a little crazy. You feel it. There's tension. People will slowly move away from you. Your, your friends, while you're at a party, will they'll, they'll suck their drink, but they'll say, just be quiet about that, all right? Don't. Imagine being a pastor in this culture. It's kind of funny sometimes to go like to graduation parties or go to a football game and sit in the stands. People will go, hi, pastor, and they'll zip by. It's, it's kind of weird. Rhonda, do you ever feel that once in a while? Like, oh, oh, your husband's a, oh, a pet, oh, okay. We represent a weird world. It doesn't seem to fit. I fit at funerals and praying by bedsides of dying people, but eh, trying to figure out this world and solve problems, really people think my only advice is you better go to church. That's my only advice. You know what the truth is? You know what's wrong with our world? What really is wrong with our world? We've kicked God out. That's the real truth. We don't allow his opinion anymore. But when a, when a person becomes a... The, the title of my series is this. It's Followers Who Follow. Last week I said to me this is the best definition of a disciple. A disciple is a person who says he's a follower but actually follows. Last week we said a follower who follows knows how to answer two questions. Who is this man and is he worth following? Is he worth denying yourself? Followers who follow say, I know he's the Christ and absolutely he's worth following. But what we're going to learn this week is followers who really follow real, start realizing I'm living in between two real worlds. They really exist. There's a place called heaven and glory that's real. But there's also this fallen, broken world that is not right. There's something desperately wrong with it, and I'm somehow supposed to live between both of these realities. I'm, I'm supposed to let heaven come in and take part 
in earth. Followers who follow are given eyesight to finally realize we are made for more than this. That's what this passage is about. What's interesting, if you go to verse 27, I want to begin there. I want to look back in order to see forward. Verse 27 is what I call foreshadowing. Foreshadowing, especially if you know literature, foreshadowing gives you clues that something in the future is going to take place. We just got done last week where Jesus said, who do you think I am? Herod thought he was maybe John the Baptist risen from the dead. The crowds, when they saw the bread divided, thought, man, this is a prophet coming back. Maybe Elijah, maybe Moses. It's interesting because you'll see Moses and Elijah show up here. He asked the disciples, who do you think I am? Peter said, I think you're the Christ. And then Jesus said, okay, then if you follow me, you've got to pick up your cross. And then he said, says something very interesting. Because on the day my father comes back, if you're ashamed of me, he'll be ashamed of you. When he comes back in his glory. And then he says in verse 27, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying most of us will have to die to see glory. He said, but standing here, some of you are going to see glory. And then it begins in verse 28. Now eight days later, after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James, and they went up to a mountain to pray. Two things. These guys are going to see heaven open. They're going to see glory. They're going to see with their very eyes this coming kingdom. But you notice who he took? He took Peter, James, and John. They call them the three insiders. But why Peter? Because Peter was the one that confessed. Peter said, I know you're the Christ. I find very interesting, before heaven is ever opened, you really need to make this faith statement, this faith commitment, and then you'll get to see. There's a cool verse. It's Amos 3.7. And it says, God reveals his secrets to his choice servants. I look at it like this. Yesterday I did a wedding. Bethany Brown got married to B.J. Merriman. I called it the wedding of the beauty and the beast. It was a beautiful wedding. When you do a wedding, you know, they come up, everybody comes up, but really the key of the wedding is the commitment. Do they say, I do? That's all you really care about. That's why in the Princess Bride say, I do, you know. Wing, marriage, marriage is what wings us to, anyhow, Chris, stop that. Okay, anyhow, BJ is standing here. Bethany is standing here. Before they say, I do, they knew each other, but yesterday they, they said, I do. Now, today, they really know each other in a lot of different ways. You're saying, Chris, but you will not really know somebody until you make a commitment to them, like a real commitment. It's the same thing with God. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter said, I think this was his I do. You are the Christ. Do you want to see some incredible things? You won't see him until you really accept him by faith. You can reason it out, but you won't be allowed in until you give your heart. It's funny, I think that's what baptism sort of is. 
22 people today are going to say, I do, in a very public way to Christ. And I've seen lives alter after baptisms. Because God knows he can trust some of his secrets to those who finally, by faith, give themselves to him. That's how it all begins. Second thing I want you to notice, they go up to pray. They go up on the mountain to pray. Prayer, prayer is a way God gives us to go into his glory. It's our access, by grace, into his presence. And that's why I think it's very interesting in verse 28, they go up to the mountain to pray. I want to say something very interesting. Notice in verse 32. I just find this fascinating. Every time Peter, James, and John go praying with Jesus, they, they seem to fall asleep. Like verse 32, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Same thing when he was in the garden. They seem to fall asleep. It's almost like when you pray with Jesus, the heaviness of glory is really tangible to where you just almost can't, you can't hold up underneath it in a human perspective. Uh, that's just a speculation. I, I find when Jesus prays, it's, it's different. It's heavy. Like it's he Have you ever had that when you pray? You're just, I think that might be why prayer is so tiring is because we're entering glory, and glory is heavy. But it gives you direct access to prayer. So when heaven's open, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I find this an amazing verse. First Corinthians 2. Hey, TJ, watch this. All right, 1 Corinthians 2. Look at verse 9. It's, it's written very strange. Paul is uh, going to quote from Isaiah 64, and he says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. What no eye has seen, no nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Meaning, eye hasn't seen. Nobody's really seen this. These things God has revealed to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, meaning there are realms that only those who are Christians are allowed in. A natural man can't get there. So we can't expect a natural man to understand some of the things we believe. We just can't. So we are going to be thought of as strange. 
kooky, weird, demented a little bit. And to me, this story of Luke is sort of demented from a natural perspective. If you go back to Luke, watch what they saw in verse 29 to 36. As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing was dazzling white. One writer said the countenance of Christ was shining out. What a countenance is in biblical language is a mirror of one's heart and a manifestation of one's relationship to God. His inner being was made, being made transparent. C.S. Lewis actually sees heaven a place where we're known not by our outside appearance, but our inside countenance. It's fascinating. Have you ever, the Bible talks about countenances. When you look at somebody, have you ever looked at somebody and you kind of know there's something a little evil about them? Or they are good people? That's your countenance. Here, one writer believes this is Jesus allowing his insight, his closeness with God, to be tangibly seen. It also gives reference to when Moses went on the mountain and his face, you couldn't even look at it because glory is, it's sort of like, have you ever seen a glow-in-a-dark stick and you put it in a light and it glows in the dark? Like Moses was in God's presence so much that he was glowing. and They couldn't look at him, so they had to put a veil on his face. But Jesus is God, and he let some of it leak out. It's fascinating to me. I wonder if the inside of us could be seen what we would look like. Dingy, a dingy, a, you know, like a eggshell white, a dingy white, a little bit of gray. Uh, I don't know. Hopefully we're white. If we have Christ, so we're white. Keep reading. Verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared and in glory, and spoke with him about his departure, which he was about to accomplish. Now Peter and those who were with them were heavy with sleep. When they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men that stood with them. And as the men were parting, Peter said, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I wonder, how did he know what was Moses? Did he hear him talking, and Jesus said, Hey, Moses, how you doing? Or did he instantly recognize his being? Will we just instantly be known in heaven? Oh, hey, like we, we are already, we already know everybody. I don't know, maybe. But later on, it says in verse 35, and they, the, the Shekinah glory came down. Remember when the tent was in a tabernacle and this cloud came over it because it represented the presence of God? It's the same thing. This cloud came over Moses, Elijah, Jesus, Peter, J James, and John. And it's the presence of God in a manifest form of a cloud. But while the cloud was over them, they heard God's voice. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. What would God's voice sound like? I mean, just thinking about all of this, seeing Jesus without any hindrance to his glory, seeing Moses there. Remember when Moses wasn't allowed in the promised land and the next time he shows up, in the promised land on a mountain with Jesus transfigured, that's a pretty good deal. Elijah went in a chariot in heaven. Here he is standing there. So what we could say is the way Luke writes about this, it's as if it's a real event. 
It's a historical event. Even Peter says about this in 2 Peter 1.16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We didn't invent this. I saw it with my very own eyes. So when I read this, I am, the way it's written, if I take it in historical, grammatical, proper context, this was real. This event was real. There is a real heaven, a place that is like nothing else, where we're going to see Jesus face to face. Listen to Hebrews 12.22. You can look this up later. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. That means there are, according to Hebrews, uncountable numbers of angels partying right now. Right now. There's a song called... Uh, Oh, Jared, what is that song, you know, the noise, the noise, the noise in heaven, noise inside by that weird singer? Yeah, what is that song? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, praise him. There's a song by David Crowder. It's called, oh, oh, praise him. But it begins by talking about the noise in heaven. The noise, the noise. It's odd, too. The very first time I heard, right after I heard my dad died, I heard that song. And it talks about heaven is noisy. And the first thing, that's the very first thing I heard about my dad dying was that song. It's like, that was exactly what I needed. And the idea of noisy, it's not cacophonous. It's, it's, it's just they can't stop praising. It's festal. It's joyous. That's what Hebrews says. It keeps going and it says, there is the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The firstborn are those of us who have accepted Christ. We are considered the firstborn. Jesus is the first fruits of the firstborn. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word and name. Hebrews talks about heaven is real. I have found followers who really follow know that heaven is as close to us as our breath. We just can't see it behind the veil. It's real. I know followers who really follow who will tell you stories of visions they saw, angelic visitations. Some have felt terrors of hell. Some have wrestled with demons. Spiritual secrets have been given in their heart. Moments of ecstasy when you just have this moment where you have just, you're different, you're you are in a different plane. There's a hush sometimes, a heavy silence, whispers from God. I have found when followers who follow tell me these things, they are not crazy. It's real. Even my mom, my mom is a stoic German. And I came home one day and my mom said, Chris, you won't believe what happened. I said, what, mom? She, she said, you, today I had to get Lara up the driveway. And my sister Lara is in a wheelchair, and she's kind of heavy because my mom's got to push her by herself. And at the time, my mom was living up this, our driveway was huge. It was curvy, it was tall. And we lived on the east side of Cleveland, kind of like Allegan. When it snows, it snows. And my mom had to get my sister off the bus. My dad wasn't home. And she realized there was about two inches of snow, fresh snow that just fell, there's no way she's going to push my sister up there, and they're going to be out in this snowstorm. 
She couldn't do it. All of a sudden, this white van drives by. This guy hops out, jumps, grabs my sister, pushes her up, up the driveway, puts her in. My mom opens the door for him. She uh, goes in and makes sure Laura's okay. Then she goes to say thank you, and the guy, there's no guy there. She looks down at the bottom of the driveway, and she says, there's no van there. This is my stoic German mom telling me the story. I say, Mom, you're crazy. She said, no, I, I think it was an angel. Can God do those things? Did you know Hebrews talks about a lot of times angels come to us unaware, and we are sometimes even paying them hospitality unaware? We're not crazy. Heaven's real. However, I want to put a caveat in there. However, heaven is not meant for us to dwell in yet. Sometimes in our desire to escape our present predicament or hang on to this joyful experience of God, we want to stay. So I would say it like this. There is a dangerous tendency to let yourself get caught up in visions and live in the pursuit of experiences. It was for Peter. Look at Peter, verse 33. It's kind of funny to me. He's groggy, you know, uh, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and they woke up, they're fully awake, so he's kind of groggy, wipes his eyes, and the first thing he sees is Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah. What is this? And he's so excited in verse 33, he says, Master, man, keep him here. Let's set up some tents. Specifically, like, you, you know, the Feast of the Tabernacles, people would make little tents out of booths, out of olive branches, and he, they'd hang out for a week. He wants to hang out with them. Some people think he wants to make a shrine so they can live in there. But whatever, I just think he wants to hang out some longer. And it even says, he doesn't even know what he's saying. He's just excited. I think there's a lot of people like that that they, every once in a while, have you ever, it's funny, sometimes you'll read the Bible and you'll want to tell somebody, it's just, oh, oh man, and then you tell them and they're, yeah, great, it's really nice. It's a weird experience. But sometimes we long to hang on to that. We want to soak in it, and it can be a dangerous tendency. I have actually seen people who live solely for that taste to stay, even to the point where they conjure experiences. They'll use contemplative techniques, emotional retreats. They'll chant. They'll sing passionately, and they'll sing long, and they'll just keep singing because they want that feeling. They want that taste of heaven back. Scripture says be very, very careful of that for two reasons. I want to take you to one reason. Go to Colossians. The uh, 2 Corinthians 1 says, did you know sometimes Satan shows up as an angel of light? So do his servants. It says sometimes those angels or spirits are actually demons. And if a demon can get you caught up in non-essential things, he'll do it. Where I know people are in so hot of pursuit of the supernatural, about angels dealing with demons, that's all they talk about. We're not meant to dwell in heaven yet, but watch Colossians. Colossians is interesting. This is a huge warning. Verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, meaning disqualification isn't losing your salvation, it's losing your 
your witness, your testimony, your willing to your ability to bear fruit for him. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, meaning giving up eating, drinking, you know, I'm I'm gonna become a vegetarian to show God how much I'm a Christian. I'm not gonna eat meat. Going in detail, or don't let him disqualify you on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions, things I saw. Why? Because it can puff you up without reason by their, by your sensuous mind, and it will kind of take you away from holding on by faith in Christ. We want, we we kind of like to tell people we had experiences. It makes us a little bit better than the average Christian. If God visited me this way, I must be special. Paul says, careful, because it will carry you away a lot from the head. That's Christ, and we'll talk about that in a second. Also, the reason why we got to be careful about dwelling in this demand for the ecstatic too much is because God does not want us living in selfish bliss while the earth groans. God does not want us to live in selfish bliss while the earth around us is groaning. That's where this second part comes in, 37 to 39 of Luke 9. So they get off the mountain. This is like every retreat. Every retreat, everything's exciting. You get home and everything stinks. They go up and they see, they're up there, they see Jesus, they get home and a guy's being thrown around by demons. And they can't do anything about it. The world's messed. Jesus has placed us for this short time. Seventy years is a short time. He's placed us for this short time in this world. And in this world, our job is to preach the gospel to the lost. It's to beg people to reconcile with God. We are ambassadors. Imploring people to be reconciled. Because his kingdom, when it comes... And it will come. People won't have a chance anymore. Because his kingdom is not fully here yet. It's just not. There's a famous scriptural or scholarly statement now saying already, not yet. It's already here in my heart. Jesus' kingdom already is here ruling and reigning over a believer's heart. But his kingdom is not yet here ruling and reigning over everything we see. It's still a broken cosmos. Cosmos means the system of the world is broken. You can read it in 1 John 5, 19. It's broken. And we dwell in between both of these places, so we've got to be very careful that we don't dwell in heaven all the time, wanting those experiences. Why? Because Romans 8, 17 to 23 says the earth is in bondage. It's groaning. It's suffering. And we are here to help. We're here to help it. It's funny. We are not yet who we are supposed to be either. There's a, in Romans 8, 17, there, if you read it in the King James, it says, there will be a time when the manifest sons of glory. That means the sons of glory, this people of Jesus, people of God, are going to be made, they're going to appear. But Romans says it hasn't happened yet. But there's a theology that says we can be right now the manifest sons of glory, meaning when you and I get to heaven, 
We are going to be God-like, small g. Did you know that? We're going to have powers beyond belief. Martin Luther even believes we'll be able to rip up trees by their roots and throw them. It's awesome. You're like, come on, you serious? Yeah, we're going to be immortal. We're going to be indestructible. Some people believe if we just believe strong enough, we can be like that now. Even when we go fishing, they believe we can speak to a lake and say, come, and all the fish will come to us. You think I'm crazy? Watch, watch uh, Christian television, <laughs> those blue-haired preachers. You can be a manifest son of glory. Just say it. No, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Case in point, look at, go to, uh, look at this story in verse 40 of Luke 9. This guy, the, this, the father of the son who's demon-possessed said, I beg your disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't. We need Jesus to do it. And Jesus gets mad because they try to do it on their own, and he says in verse 41, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? He's kind of upset that they don't realize it's Jesus then. He's the only answer right now. He's it. We are given access to power through faith because without him we could do nothing. Nothing. And to me, this is when we're on the earth, we have a very dangerous tendency as well. Here's a dangerous tendency for us as we dwell on the earth. There's a very dangerous tendency to look for man-made solutions to try to fix spiritual problems where we think we can do it. We can handle it. We don't need help. Most of the world's problems, believe it or not, these days needs Christ to fix them. But because we are saturated in a world that is materialist, humanist, scientific, we first look for man-made solutions to fix what are really spiritual problems. We think really highly of ourselves. We think highly of our counseling abilities. We think highly of our... We've read a book on psychology, therefore I know the human psyche so well I can help him with everything. Actually, Eugene Peterson was this pastor in the New England area, and he said every Tuesday all these pastors would get together and learn how to basically psychoanalyze their people in their congregation. They learned tools to help counsel them. And one day he went to the hospital and he went to help this lady and he was listening to her and he started to give her a diagnosis and she said, I didn't call you here for that. He goes, well, what do you mean? All I want you to do is just pray for me. And he said, oh yeah. That's what I'm called to do. As if he kind of Push prayer aside thinking it really doesn't help anymore. i got to figure people out. I want to read this story to you. This is, uh, do you remember the TV show called ER? Remember that, Kim? And there was one um, episode. Listen to this episode. This is chilling. And ER wrote this episode, which is even more chilling. It's a story about this police officer. He is lying in a hospital dying from cancer. And he asked for the chaplain. So the chaplain comes in and he confesses to the chaplain his long-held guilt over framing an innocent man who got executed. He asks the chaplain, how can I ever hope for forgiveness? The chaplain replies, I think sometimes it's easier to feel guilty than forgiven. The man says, well, what does that mean? 
Uh, the chaplain says that maybe your guilt over his death has become your reason for living. Maybe you need a new reason to go on. He says, I don't want to go on, says the dying man. Can't you see I'm dying? The only thing that's holding me back is that I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what comes next. Chaplain says very calmly, what do you think that is? Growing impatient, the man answers, you tell me. Is atonement possible? What does God want from me? After the chaplain replies, I think it's up to each one of us to interpret for ourselves what God wants. The man stares at her in bewilderment. So people can do anything. They can rape, they can murder, they can steal all in the name of God and it will be okay. Growing intense, the dialogue draws to its climate. No, that's not what I'm saying, the chaplain responds. Then what are you saying? Because all I'm hearing is some new age, God is love, have it your way crap. Sorry I said it, but that's what he said. No, I don't have time for this now. You don't understand, the chaplain counters. No, you don't understand. I want a real chaplain who believes in a real God and a real hell. Missing the point of this man's struggle, the chaplain collects herself and says in the familiar tone of condensation, disguised with understanding, I hear that you're frustrated, but you need to ask yourself. And he interrupts, no! I don't need to ask myself anything. I need answers, and all your questions and all your uncertainty are only making things worse. With no more than evaluate his tone, she encourages calm. I know you're upset, she begins, provoking his final out. I need someone who will look me in the eye and tell me how to find forgiveness because I am running out of time. All of us are. Everybody needs forgiveness. And what we tend to do is give man-made solutions to terrible predicaments. I think even 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says, you know what we need to do? We need to pray for our leaders in our country. Instead of wrangling over political articles, which I do all the time. Mike knows that. That's my problem. I need to pray. Like, really pray. Humans are made of clay. But never forgot what brought this clay to life the breath of heaven. We are made to live in both worlds, so how do we do this? We go back to Luke. It's very simple. Watch how simple it is. Luke 9. So you have Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus. Verse 35. Well, verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And as a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. That's the answer. How do we live in both worlds? By listening to him. There's three reasons that I wrote it. He is greater than the law of prophets. So you have Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets, and then when the cloud leaves, they're gone, and Jesus remains, and he says, listen to him. And the idea is really, he is now the fulfillment of what Moses came for and Elijah came for. It's him. He's better than those guys. Don't set up booths for them. Don't set up booths for the law and for the prophets. and what. Listen to him. It's very interesting then. You get to 2 Peter 1.19, and Peter said, I saw, I saw this. I heard God with my own ears. But you know what you have? You have the word of God made more sure than what I saw. You have something more sure than my vision. This word, 
His word, the reason we have to listen to him is because his word is sure. So many times the Bible says God does not lie. Our visions do. Demons are disguised as angels often. But this word does not lie to you. Even little boys who say they go to heaven, I'm not sure I always believe them. The third thing, the reason why we need to listen to him is because his message brings heaven to earth. You know what's fascinating? Look at um, look at verse 31. Okay, so he's talking with Moses and Elijah. What are they talking about? Verse 31. They appeared with him in glory, and they were talking about his departure. What does that mean? That word departure in the Greek is exodus, the exodus of Jesus in Jerusalem. What does that mean? Well, you remember when Moses led Israel out of, he led the exodus. What is the exodus? To be free of the bondage in Egypt, a lamb had to be slain, and blood had to be on the doorpost so the angel of death wouldn't kill them, and he would set them free. So a, a lamb had to be slain to set people free from bondage. That's the exodus. And then they say the exodus that's going to take place in Jerusalem. What is the exodus that's going to take place in Jerusalem? Jesus talks about it in verse 44. Let these words sink into your ears. Let them sink into your ears. So you're going to listen to them? Then let these words sink. The Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men. Why? He is the Lamb who is going to die to set you free bondage of sin. That is the message as we're trapped between heaven and earth right now. That's why we're here. That's what we need to be about. Not chasing visions and not trying to find solutions for man-made problems. We are here to help people be set free. Jared, as you come up, I want to tell you one more story. This is a, my wife got me this for my, my birthday. It's called God's Double Agent. It's about Bob Fu. Bob Fu, this is an amazing story. It's written two years ago. Bob Fu lived in China. He was raised in the communist regime. He was a teacher in China. And he was part of the, I don't know if you remember in China, the march in Tiananmen Square, the students' uprising. They wanted to... Basically, the students wanted, to, they wanted democracy. They wanted to have a voice because communism and uh, red, red China's communism basically would not let anybody have the freedom of religion, the freedom of the press, the freedom of speech. And so there's a student uprising. And if you know the history, they had tanks come rolling in and they, he, he says, probably about a thousand students were run over and killed. But they also were recorded and those students who were there on the square were targeted as basically rebels against the state he was and because of that he was not allowed to anymore fraternize in college with his his fellow students he had to sit in the back of his class and he had to write out his confession how he was trying to overthrow the communist government and he was mad and depressed so he writes this quick little story he says, I began to dream about murder and death all the time. I no longer had any options 
I no longer tried to impress anyone, and every day I laid my head on the deck, the, my desk and cried next to the two soldiers. Said so the guy inside in front of me one day got so sick of me, he whispered, he gave me a book, he goes, here, this might help you. Just read it and shut up. I said, why would this help? He goes, I don't know, the English teacher gave me it. It's about some Chinese intellectual who used to be an opium dealer, and he got out of his depression. So he starts reading it. It's about this, this guy who met some American missionaries. He was a professor as well of Confucius. And he met these American missionaries, and he started going and visiting them. And the reason he visited them is, listen why this guy went to the missionaries. I beheld their kindly eyes and remembered that if a man's heart is not right, his eye will certainly bespeak it. But their faces told me that they were truly good men, kind of like countenances coming out. So he went, and what they wanted him to do was translate the New Testament into Chinese. So this Confucius professor started translating it. Listen to this. It says, when he got to the story of the crucifixion, he fell on his knees and he wept. He felt he'd finally found the answer he'd been searching for his, his entire life. Bob Fu read that in that little book that was given to him. It said, a chill came over me. I looked up from the book, and I realized it was written for me. I never heard of Jesus before, but I knew he was the truth. It said a tear trickled down his, his cheek, and then another student sitting in a few rows from him just rolled his eyes, but he said, when she saw me, my crying was no longer interesting. It was different to them. This time, his crying was because he found hope. Goes on to say, I went to the teacher, the teacher was a Christian, and the teacher said, what do you want? And he says this. I laughed when he asked me that. He said, that book worked. I said, what do you mean? He said, I've seen the light. I believe in Jesus, and I feel like the birds are singing just for me. I feel like God himself is putting his arms around me, and I feel joy where there to only be sorrow. This man became a Christian. He started about 70 different home churches in China. He was in prison for a while. Now he's over in the United States helping really our government talk about how Chinese are really being treated wrongly. But this guy was a communist. He reads a book about the crucifixion and it changes his world because heaven is real. 